This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Sister Sledge, Lost in Music, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Greens MP Sam Hibbins joins us to talk about their proposed amendments to Victoria's Equal Opportunity Act to protect LGBTIQ folks in religious schools. Performer Weird Alice joins us to talk about their midsummer extravaganza, the drop-deadly gorgeous pageant at Melbourne's iconic Abbotsford Convent. And later, gay author Kevin Clare joins us from Sydney to talk about his new novel, Winter Masquerade. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Sam Hibbins is the Greens LGBTIQ spokesperson here in Victoria and the member for Paran and joins us on the line. Sam, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So the Greens have proposed amendments to Victoria's Equal Opportunity Act to close off loopholes for religious organisations to reduce their capacity to discriminate. Let's start Mm. with our queer students and teachers. What protections would the Act give them under your amended version? Well, currently under the Equal Opportunity uh, Act, which quite rightly um, prevents discrimination based on you know a range of attributes for people, whether that be age, sex, sexuality, um, even marital status. But there are certain carve-outs within this within this law that actually um, allows for discrimination in faith-based organisations, including faith-based schools. And so our proposed changes to the laws, uh, changes that we've put before Parliament before and been advocating for a very long time, would close off, would get rid of these exemptions, specifically in this instance for schools, so protecting students and teachers and staff. Ideally, we'd like to see these exemptions scrapped altogether. But we really think the first place to start would be for school students and teachers. Uh, Of course, you'd be well aware of the outrage across the nation, uh, which occurred when people actually realised that these exemptions are in place, both in state and federal law, from the um, which came out of the Ruddock Review into Religious Freedom. What protections would your legislation give staff and clients of religious organisations such as women seeking help at family violence shelters run by religious organisations? Would they be protected Mm. under your amended act? Uh, well, look, ideally, um, under this specific bill, which is specifically focused on schools, that wouldn't change that law, although we have looked to change the law more broadly. So what that would, um, it would essentially prevent, um, what we'd like to see is any faith-based organisation uh, that's providing services, whether it's schools, whether it's family violence organisations, social services, housing, there would be no permitted or no legal discriminations against people of based on their gender identity or their sexuality. That should be the standing point. Uh, that, that should be the, the aim. That should, that should be where we need to get to. But it's really unfortunate that the, the, these laws still remain in place. Do you call on the Andrews government to actually clamp down on those exemptions mm. that wouldn't be, wouldn't be covered by your amended legislation? Yeah, absolutely. Ideally, we'd like to see the government introduce their own bill. Ideally, what we'd like to see is go further than than schools, but all organisations and these exemptions gone completely. You know, we've we've made some real, you know, some really good progress in Victoria in terms of uh, equality and changing the law and getting rid of a lot of these discriminatory parts of our statute books. But this has really been the one sticking point, and it's been the one area which the um, state Labor government uh, hasn't touched. In fact, when we proposed these laws, proposed these changes back in 2016, they voted against them. Uh, I think it's now time that they get on board and introduce their own bill and change the law here in Victoria. How have they responded to your amended bill? What are they saying? Have they reacted? 
Uh, well, we haven't heard anything from them um, so far. What we what we have heard uh, is my understanding is their position since the um, furor uh, broke out some time ago in regards to these laws that they were going to uh, wait and see what happened federally with this religious. Um, wait and see what happened federally, given that there was the promises made some time ago by the federal government that they would act in this area. It's clear now that the federal government isn't not just walking away from that promise, but is actually now seeking to further entrench discrimination through their own uh, religious freedom bill. So now really it is the impetus now for the state government to step up, just like they have done in other areas like energy or infrastructure where with the federal government's been missing, it's actually now them time to now step up and change the law uh, here in Victoria. Why did the government reject your bill in 2016? That's a that's a really good question. They did not give give. I don't think they provided any real answer. It was it was very disappointing, and uh, I would urge them to, to to reconsider and to change their mind and to actually introduce a bill of their own. So I know the legislation we currently have in Victoria was introduced by the former Labor government when Rob Hulls was the Attorney General here in Victoria. How did mm. we get to a point where religious organisations were enabled to discriminate under the Equal Opportunity Act? Yeah, well, obviously this was part. This was this was part of how these laws came into a place where uh, carve-outs were given, where exemptions were given to, to faith-based organisations to allow them to discriminate. Uh, and we've tried over a number of years to move amendments and move bills to get rid of these uh, exemptions. Uh, and unfortunately, we've been blocked at all at all stages by both Labor and Liberal governments and oppositions. And these laws are really insidious. You know, there's not just you know there's direct discrimination which occurs. There's indirect discrimination and power imbalances which occur in you know, schools and where people are operating under the threat or under the fear that they might be discriminated against if they disclose their sexuality or gender identity. And then there's the fear of, you know, I've heard people, for example, a homeless LGBTI young person who may have been kicked out of home because of their sexuality, now they're not necessarily going to go to a faith-based organisation if they fear that there's discrimination behind uh, that door. Uh, or I've heard from um, teachers who are not going to apply for a job at a faith-based school because of the risk that there could be discrimination involved there. So these are really insidious laws um, that have just got no place today in, any, in society, certainly not today in 2020. And given what's happening federally with the federal government now walking away from their promise, uh, it's really now up to the state government to act. You are the Greens LGBTIQ issues spokesperson here in Victoria. The Andrews government has promised to ban conversion practices here. Mm. What should be in and what should be out of the government's upcoming legislation to do that? Mm. Well, we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see what they they bring to the table. I understand a, a wide a wide range of mechanisms has been proposed. So we'll actually have to really wait and see what they actually bring to the table in terms of what that legislation uh, looks looks like. We're absolutely definitely supportive of it. But what I would say is, <clears throat> on top of whatever legislative approach we take, we've really got to make it clear that it's not just the gay conversion therapy, the, the practice that needs to be tackled, it's this ideology, this ex-gay ideology that's pervasive and what really drives this the conversion therapy. That needs to be tackled as well. Uh, and that means, in my view, shining a light on where conversion therapy is occurring and making sure that this ideology of ex-gay ideology is really... Um, uh, the light is shone on that and that is um, addressed as well. So when you do shine the light on it, where does it take you? Where is all this coming from? Well, 
certainly. I mean, uh, once you have, um, if there's uh, uh, a lot of this is occurring, you know, behind the scenes or behind closed doors of, of um, certain organisations. And what we were keen to see is, uh, we were keen to see originally, we were keen to very much see an inquiry into the ex-gay movement. Uh, and that would have allowed people to uh, tell their story. Uh, for questions to be asked of organisations where this was occurring and have a really transparent and open process. <clears throat> now, what did occur is that the government did have an inquiry into um, gay conversion therapy. It was done through the Health Services Commissioner. So it was a, it was a, uh, I'm sure it was a very thorough, a, a, thorough, a thorough inquiry. But we didn't really have the, I guess you could say, the naming and shaming and the more public um, approach that, say, a parliamentary inquiry would have, uh, would have taken. Um, so, so I'm still um, open uh, and still thinking that potentially... Uh, a parliamentary inquiry or a public inquiry uh, could be useful. Um, but as I said, we'll see what the government puts on the table uh, and then we'll take it from there. Your electorate of Paran here in Melbourne has a very large and, and vocal LGBTIQ community. What major policy issues are they saying the Andrews government should be addressing? Uh, look, when we've... When we've um uh, when we've focused on these areas of, of discrimination and these exemptions in the Equal Opportunity Act, it's been received really well about the changes that need to be made. Uh, for a lot of people, they're unaware that these laws actually exist. Uh, and as we saw <coughs> some time ago when the, the Ruddock Religious uh, Review into Religious Freedom actually drew attention to these laws, people were absolutely outraged. So this is definitely an area that people in, in my electorate and the LGBTI community, changes that they support, uh, and I think really want to see go through. How would you rate the uh, Morrison government's performance generally, particularly the ideology, but also the dismissiveness of transparency and accountability that's very much present in in the Prime Minister's kind of demeanour, especially at the National Press Club this week? Well, it's 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 incredibly disappointing. I mean, this is a time now where we need uh, leadership. We need <coughs> leadership on climate, uh, on our future, and it's surely missing from um, the federal government and the federal Liberal government. Uh, and it's really disappointing. Uh, and it's been called out by the Australian people, and I think the outrage that the Australian people had towards uh, the Prime Minister and the, the, the federal Liberal government whilst the the, the bushfires are continuing is, is absolutely justified. They would be well advised, uh, well advised to get with the program and to, to really embrace climate action here in Australia. Back to Victoria, Martin Foley, of course, is the Equality Minister here in Victoria representing LGBTIQ community issues. In the government, how would you rate his performance in the LGBTIQ portfolio? Oh, well, look, there's absolutely no doubt that we have seen a lot of really good changes here in Victoria um, in the LGBTI portfolio. I think it's really great that we've got an LGBTI minister. Uh, it was the Greens many uh, a long time ago that actually had that for the first had that as standalone portfolio. And so there's absolutely no doubt, I think, that we've come a very long way. But um, what I would say is if we're going to live up to our promise or the, the, the promise that Victoria is the most, you know, progressive, progressive government and the most progressive state, that we are, you know, really, truly a, a, the rainbow state, the equality state, um, and live up to the promise that the premiers and the, the, the minister has made of, of getting rid of, rid of any of all this discrimination in our statute books, uh, then these exemptions that currently exist in Victoria's equal opportunity laws that allow for discrimination um, against uh, LGBTI students and teachers and people accessing services, well, well they need to go. Sam Hibbins, awesome Chang, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for joining yeah, thank- us on 3CR. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Cheers.
Top Boys. It's a sin. You are in your face on 3CR with James. So wrapped to have Weird Alice in the studio. Welcome to 3CR, Alice. Thanks for having me. Oh, on this hot day. Thank you so much for coming in. You're curating Drop Deadly Gorgeous at the Abbotsford Convent as part of Midsummer. Do tell. What's it all about? So Drop Deadly Gorgeous is a pageant focusing on queer, trans, intersex, and POC and mostly Aboriginal artists from across Melbourne from like different disciplines. So I've got drag queens, drag kings, comedians, performance artists, uh, rapper, I'm missing somebody, a burlesque dancer. And it's just kind of like a wide look at our queer community, but focusing on people who should be in the spotlight and not who you would normally see in a pageant, because it's also kind of meant to take the piss out of pageant culture a little bit because it's, it's very exclusionary, but also very campy in the same right, which is where I like to sit. So I decided to do this as the project for my artist residency there. Yeah, yeah, it's so exciting. Tell us about some of the artists, like the names, like who can we expect? So we have Cerulean, um, who is a drag queen. We have Randy Roy, who is a drag king. We have Simple the Drag Queen. We have Kitty Obsidian, who's a burlesque dancer. Race Rage, who's a rapper. I'm missing somebody. We have Rada, who's coming in from Sydney, and they're a drag performance artist who does lots of, like, cooking with their performances. Um, we have Semina Porsche, who's doing some performance art and one who I haven't mentioned yet is Plastic Messiah who's going to do some theatrical cabaret music. They're always a wild card so I actually don't know what they're going to bring for me. Now they're competing in three categories for the title of Queer Supreme Mm -hmm. 2020. Tell us about those categories. So the categories are traditional pageant categories but they can interpret them however they wish. So they have swimwear, they have their talent and then they have their formal wear. And so, again, they're, it's fun because I'm in a group chat with them where they're all trying to figure out what they would do, but they're not telling me anything. So they keep going to separate ones to kind of like get ideas because I think because I'm on the microphone the whole night, they want me to be surprised and just have a bit of fun with it. So there's a, a strong satire focus here. You really yeah. seem to be taking the, the piss out of mainstream gay culture, queer culture in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I like um, a lot of my art is sitting in taking up space in kind of industries where you're told you're not allowed to be for no good reason. So I used to do professional wrestling and that was kind of the same thing as like a fat queer femme person. It's not really a space that they assume is for me. And I took up a lot of space in it and then use that to kind of help bring other people into it and make it safer for other people. Um, Same with pageant stuff. A lot of drag, a lot of old school drag. There are some people who are a bit gatekeepery about who can do drag or what is considered drag. Um, And you get that with burlesque as well and like what body types are meant to be seen so i just this is kind of making fun of pageants while still being a celebration that's actually a competition and with a load of just really good prizes for the winners as well so you were a wrestler i was a wrestler how did you end up as a wrestler what's the backstory um i've always loved wrestling because it's just silly Like growing up, my dad was really into it and I didn't care about the fighting, but there were these dudes in like tiny but over the top outfits and they were just really funny. 
Like, I didn't understand how anybody could take it seriously. It's like a soap opera, but people hit each other. And that's fascinating to me. And so I've always loved it. I have tattoos of wrestlers. And the League of Lady Wrestlers started in the Yukon in Canada. And then they started one in Toronto. And I missed it. And I reached out and I asked if I could help out. Could I referee? Could I announce? Because I've done lots of hosting work. Could I sell merch? Like, I just wanted to be there. And they asked me if I wanted to wrestle. I said, no. I was like, unless you're training, absolutely not. I'm friends with wrestlers and they they're trained and they break their collarbones I'm not letting any of you lift me up it's not happening and then I was like but involve me somehow and they like agreed to like train and so we took like a private training session and there was just the one and then everybody did like private practices and I just kept training and doing it so I learned a lot and then ended up teaching the rest of the league some stuff and then traveling a lot with it um in other cities and even in the U.S., people who followed me and the stuff that I wrote about wrestling and drag and queerness in those spaces asked me to be a part of that. And so it was like just a kind of bizarre side offshoot to what I do. I tend to have one character that ends up with like 20 different names that sits in this kind of just performance art space. And wrestling was one of the, a big part of it. So you were like a traveling wrestler. Yeah. Wow. And my wrestling name was Donut Mess Around. Fantastic. So what brought you to Australia from Toronto? So yeah, from um, Southern Ontario, lived in Toronto for the past decade before moving to Australia. And I don't handle winter very well. And I have no real like reason to stay in one spot like I can travel for all of my work so I don't need to sit through winter anymore so I figured I'd just leave and I didn't know anybody and I bought tickets and moved here and I had met Glitter Supernova um, in my travels in the States before but um, I didn't really know anybody and took no time before I just kind of like immersed myself in the queer community here here in Melbourne. Yeah. So you're the artist in residence at the iconic Abbotsford Convent. What does that role involve? I still don't understand how I got it. It still blows my mind. Um, I had six months where I got to do kind of whatever I wanted um, under their kind of just assistance. So I pitched... Um, a piece to them, which was actually going to be centered around wrestling, but I wouldn't have had time to get everybody trained to do it. And I took the same themes and we had kind of a brainstorm session. And I've always wanted to run a pageant because I took place in one in Toronto called Bent Supreme, which is a busted beauty pageant. Um, and I a busted beauty pageant. Yeah. What's that? It's just also just making fun of pageants so it is very similar and this is like very inspired by that so they took six i think queer people from like completely varying backgrounds and communities and had them compete and i ended up getting miss congeniality which they called miss congenital warts and it was just kind of still kind of it was a fundraiser and um i've wanted to do something like that and we don't have an alternative pageant here there is miss gay trans australia which is like the the big one but there isn't anything like alternative and there's like burlesque specific ones and there's lots of drag competitions but there isn't anything that's just here's a bunch of queer art but instead of doing a cabaret it's like let's i like giving people tasks that are seemingly impossible to meet like before this i was running a game show 
with tell uh, us about that yeah so one of my contestants um simple the drag queen were in a drag house together and we ran a game show called failure the game show and it was three different um queer artists again um i would try to make sure that they weren't the same performance style but also not the same background so we had no more than one white cis person on a show and it was so you would get all these different like backgrounds and points of view and just give them really silly tasks that they weren't told about before showing up so they knew what performance they were going to do as their like talent to introduce themselves almost like the dating show you come out and you say something about yourself but instead they would do a talent to show who they were so they would do a performance and then the rest of the night was them competing for a prize that they didn't know what it was normally a sash or a crown that we like made that we wrote on with markers and it was set up kind of like an old school game show and so i like this kind of just shifting what you see and subverting what you expect out of a show just enough so that it's still accessible and enjoyable, but different enough that you want to see it. And also a a diverse enough cast that it's actually diverse and not for tokenistic purposes, but also so that you get a different audience in who they're going to see someone who they've never heard of before. They're there to see their one friend, but the third contestant they've never heard of because they don't go to... Like, we have Race Rage. Like, we have drag people who've never seen Race Rage perform because they don't go to Aboriginal events where there's rappers. And they're going to love Race Rage, as they should. And same thing, people who are there to see the burlesque dancer might not have seen Randy Roy, who's, like, our, our drag king. And so I like kind of exposing artists and giving them more of a network, too, so everyone can see it. Because I'm just, I like the art I do mainly because I can do it to provide platforms for other people. I just want to like curate shows where other people can see the bizarre things that I find enjoyable. It sounds like you make your your performers work really hard. It's almost like you're a dominatrix. (laughs) Maybe, but I let them kind of, I give them like a basic bizarre framework and then I let them run free with it. It's like, here's a task that you didn't think you'd be given, have at it. And unless they're like crossing a boundary or doing something that might not be content appropriate. I'll just let them have fun. It's like, just go for it. I trust almost everybody I book. What can we expect from you when this amazing residency ends? It sounds like you're just going to fall into something else. Well, so this is the end project for the residency. So it's been the last six months I've been working on this and also some solo stuff. So there's an art project that's not finished yet. I'm focusing on rituals and identity as a queer um, biracial First Nations person from the other side of the world and what it's like to incorporate that into art, but also how other people I work with fuse their identity into art. So that's something that will also come of it eventually. And the beautiful thing about working with the Abbotsford convent, they're so lovely is it's kind of once you've done one thing there, you're, you're, you're stuck there. You're always doing work with them. So I have other plans, even though I'm finished my residency now. And now the new artist in residence is Haley Tanzer has the next six months. And then Jacob Boam, I believe is the six months after that. So we're all in there for half a year doing very different things and trying to all still kind of work together. And so I do a little bit of work with the two who were in there before me as well. So Drop Deadly Gorgeous is your extravaganza for the it's end of my, your, your residency. It's my big blowout party. It supports other artists. I get to do a few cheeky things. Such as? Um, some performances that you're going to have to come and see on the 9th of February. At will the you concert. be wrestling? I will not be wrestling, <laughs> no. Um, I, you know, I might wrestle someone for this crown after they, I give it to them because I want <laughs> the prize. The prizes are just 
The prizes are really good. We've got paid gigs at queer events throughout Melbourne throughout the year for the winner, and then styling from Styled by Esther, some Doodad and Fandango jewelry, some House of Dizzy custom hoops with the names, uh, the name of the winner, nails from my nail technician, Miss J's Nails and Beauty, and at least like 15 other things it's i was writing it down so they know because up until yesterday the contestants didn't even know what they were competing for they just i asked them to do this and they're like that sounds really really silly like count me in and they've been really on board which is fun because i I still don't know what most of them are doing give us the details so people can rock along to drop deadly gorgeous so the tickets are available on the midsummer website or also through the abbotsford convent website it will just lead you through there it's Sunday, February the 9th at the convent in the Magdalene North Laundries. It's from 6.30 p.m. till 11 p.m. Show starts at 7 p.m. sharp. Mabu Mabu are going to be on site selling food as well. They're a Torres Strait Islander restaurant and they're going to have food on site as well. Um, Tickets are $30. They're $25 with a concession card. And if you follow... Drop Deadly Gorgeous on Instagram or Facebook, but also I don't get weird drag on Instagram. There's more details there, and I've been putting out some discount codes as well for people. Mainly, um, we have mob tickets at a discounted rate, so those can the t- code for that can be got directly through contacting me. Weird Alice, thank you so much for popping into 3CR. Yeah, it's been, thank you for having me. It's been so super awesome meeting you. Best of luck with Drop Deadly Gorgeous. Thank you. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. He's garbage queer. Yeah. 
queer. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Kevin Clare's new novel, Winter Masquerade, was released last week and he joins us on the line from Sydney. Kevin, welcome to In Your Face. Hello, James. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Tell us about the novel's main character, Ferris, and how he finds himself on an enchanted ship. Well, yes, he has a boyfriend back home. He's talking to his boyfriend. But the novel starts when he wakes up on a ship sailing on chocolate with a permanent rainbow laundry in the sky. And he meets all these eccentric characters, think kind of Alice in Wonderland style of a story. And all he wants to do is get back to his boyfriend. But the only person that can help him is the alchemist who's been kidnapped. And the ransom is tea with scones and jam. But it's a little bit more twisted than that because at certain stages, this beautiful fantasy world becomes twisted and dark and steampunk. And through those times, he's in mortal danger, but he has to work out the riddles that'll help him sort out his own life and the problems in his own relationship if and when he gets back to the real world. Wow, so it is very Alice in Wonderland. Yes, very Alice in Wonderland. In fact, a 10-year-old uh, daughter of friends of ours helped me with some of the characters. Like, she decided that the, uh, there's a band who are rehearsing for the Winter Masquerade, and she decided the 10-year-old boy's name should be Scallywag. And I also asked her, because some of the characters have darker versions of themselves when the whole world goes dark and evil and nasty, I asked her about the uh, harp player, Olive, what uh, tendency should she have when she turns, you know, into the evil version of herself. And our 10-year-old friend said she should have homicidal tendencies. Wow, that's a lot coming from a 10-year-old. Yes, yes, she reads a lot. I don't know what she's reading, but she reads a lot. So it sounds like these dark themes in the novel are kind of metaphors for the times that we're living in. Like, is that the case? Like, what's inspired all this? Ah, what the, the, the darker themes, like, just so you know, I've, I've actually, this is probably about my, I think it's my eighth book or my ninth book, but this is the darkest I've ever gone with any of my uh, stories. And, and what the dark sections represent are Ferris, who's in denial about certain aspects of his relationship with his boyfriend, coming to terms with what's actually wrong with his life and what he's uh, missed out on by being um, disassociated with his old friends and, and, and how he's got to wake up to the fact that he's actually also in mortal danger in his actual living, waking life. So who inspired Ferris? Is Ferris a combination of people that you know in real life? Bits and pieces of you know, that's a, you know, Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of times in my books, people have been, but Ferris is not based on anyone in particular. He, in my mind, he's sort of in his, in his 30s. He's tall, a little bit lanky, a little bit goofy, but he does find romance and charm these uh, fancy characters and does find new romance on the ship with a with a drummer named Cole who just wears a white suit and that but as far as based on anyone for the very first time probably not because even my own husband has given me permission to use any part of our lives together and our love life in my novels but there's 
no connection between my own life or anyone I know with Ferris for the first time. So there sounds like there's some real themes going on in Winter Masquerade of gay escapism. Uh, yes, yes. There is definitely a lot of queerness in this book. There's other gay characters and one of them being the detective who is pretty much useless, but he has a little sidekick, a um, a small talking flying horse who's, you know, man bag size, who is the real brains of trying to solve these puzzles and these mysteries that Ferris comes back with from the dark, from the dark version of, of this fantasy ship. But as far as darker themes within within the gay community it reflects the sort of relationships that aren't that perfect that may have a power play in them and that's what ferris has to come to terms with was there a moment that you can recall when you decided that you wanted to write queer fantasy novels uh you know i didn't set out to probably about 10 12 years ago i started writing my first novel, Drama Queens with Love Scenes. And I didn't necessarily set out to write queer fiction, but I based the two main characters on my now husband and myself because we've been together since 1990. So I just based the two main characters on both me and him. And as I was getting it professionally assessed, it was my assessor who sort of said, you know, the, why don't you concentrate on the romance between you two in this book? Uh, because the, the first novel's set in the in the uh, theatre district of the afterlife and both characters realise they're dead and just have to deal with the fact that they're dead with other more fantasy characters. So I think I kind of fell into it and I think just being gay myself, it's kind of hard to write fiction that doesn't have queer themes. I've written one short story that's published in an Australian anthology, but it, it, it's hard because this is your life and this is your point of view. Absolutely. So why did you write about the theatre scene of the afterlife? Do tell more about that scene. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drama Queens with Love Scenes is book one of the Actors and Angels series. And... Why did I? Um, the other the other reason was because I hinted at theatre in the first draft, and my assessor said you seem to know about theatre because long ago I moved to Sydney to study acting, and she said write about what you know. You obviously know about the relationship between the two main characters, and you obviously know about theatre and acting. So I expanded on a story that has a, a hopeless bad playwright in it who is given all the accolades because he's all around the right people and they just happen to all be dead and from different eras of of, um, of life, different eras of time. The playwright does sound like they're based on someone real. I know you can't name them, but are they a real person <laughs> or, or bits and pieces of real people? Uh, the interesting thing in that book, uh, in Drama Queens with Love Scenes and the, and the two others in the series, one of the other people that was based on someone real is the insecure character who's an angel, insecure angel, whose name is Guy. And when that book was published, all the readers fell in love with Guy. They weren't that interested in the main characters, but Guy seems to be the favourite. Guy was based on someone both my husband and I knew who was insecure, and I based it originally on him... But as the story developed, he kind of developed into his own character. 
So of the eight novels that you've written, which one's been the most rewarding for you personally? Oh, that's it's it's hard to say. The new, the new one has been rewarding because with every book you feel like your writing gets better. The one before this, Social Media Central, that's rewarding because it's well, it's kind of weird because when I started writing it, it was all based in uh, 2064 in a society fully immersed in social media. But what was scary as I was writing it, because it took, you know, because I'd take a few years to write each book, things were actually happening that were in my novel. And even before it was published, the major plot twist, which I was so proud of, which I might as well give away because it actually happened about people pretending to be your friends online in order to get you to make a political decision actually happened before the book was published. So in a way, that was very rewarding to see what I'd written had come true. It was not as rewarding to see it came true before the book was actually published. Yeah, that would have been frustrating. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So tell us about your writing habits. Are you disciplined? I used to be. I can't have any music or any other sound in the room. And what I've found lately is there's a new library nearby, the Marrickville Library, that has a huge silent room, which all these desks set up and PowerPoints where you can just sit in quiet and concentrate and study or write. But the best thing about this library, it has a cafe attached to it. So you can leave your laptop, go down and order something, take it back to your laptop, and later on the the wait staff will come and take it away for you. So you can, you know, eat and write at the same time. And get out of the house so you don't drive your partner crazy. That's exactly right. That's exactly that's exactly right. Um, because because as much as I love my husband, and he tries to be as quiet as possible, but then he may just ask me something out of the blue or say, "Oh, do you mind if I turn the TV on? I'll put the headphones on." It's like, yeah, but you've now taken me out of the train of thought I was in and zone. the discipline I was in. Yeah. So, Winter Masquerade is published by Nine Star Press. Tell us about them. Ah, now they are a boutique uh, uh, queer publisher who publish books with main characters from all parts of the rainbow, LGBTQIA+. They started several years ago and I was brought over to them by a previous editor who worked with another publisher who sadly closed down, who originally had Drama Queens with Love Scenes and Drama Queens and Adult Themes and another book called Nate and the New Yorker. And he brought me over to this new publisher just before my current publisher back then, Wild Star, uh, sorry, Wild City Press, folded. So Nightstar Press, if you look at their site, they've got a fantastic cover artist and you will find queer books of all genres, because a lot of people who don't know a lot about queer writing think we just write romance, erotica, or coming out stories. Yes, they are still written, but every genre is there for you to choose from, science fiction, full-on fantasy, with queer characters in the main roles. Awesome stuff. And of course, can people get your copies as a, as a printed copy and online? Like, are you, are you kind of diverse I, in that area? Yes. Uh, the only the only ones that are only e-books are the new one, Winter Masquerade, because it's only novella size, 
And with the publisher being a boutique publisher, if it's a, a book under 50,000 words, then there's only an ebook edition. And from their website, you can only buy ebook editions of all their books. But but all their books are available on you know Amazon, even, even you know, Barnes and Noble, even Angus and Robertson, even Booktopia. So you can buy them. In, you can buy them on Australian sites just as much as you can buy them through Apple Books and all the other smash words, all the usual retailers. Most of my books. Uh, there is a print edition because they are full novels. Just uh, Winter Masquerade and another one called Midnight Angel are the only two that are e-book only because they're only novella length. Awesome stuff. Congratulations, Kevin, on Winter Masquerade and thanks so much for joining us down 3CR. Thank you for inviting me, James. It was a pleasure. Cheers, ditto. The wonderful Kevin Clare there talking about his new novel, Winter Masquerade, published by Nine Star Press. And yep, you can get it online.
In Your Face would like to thank Thornhaber Health for their financial support of this program. Thornhaber Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornhaber Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.